This morning's reading is Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By Christ, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for the good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Across all cultures and worldviews, both now in the present and basically for all time since humanity has existed, there are essentially just three ways that people view the condition of humanity. Some people will say humanity is healthy. Some people will say humanity is sick. Something's wrong. And some will say humanity is dead. So between healthy, sick, and dead, what do you think? And I'm talking about, again, the condition of us, humankind as a whole, across all cultures, races, ethnicity, time period, all of that, as you observe the local, the state, the national, the international news, and you experience human-caused problems in society, including inflation and the contentious issues around race and politics, and you know, right now in our own city, experiencing skyrocketing homelessness and a significant drug crisis, and um, once again, a, a rising of violent crime back to a period that kind of parallels what happened in the 80s in Denver. And heard of a, like there was a quadruple homicide out by where I live this morning overnight. So as you just look at the division, the contention, the, the frustrations that you experience, that you see others experiencing around you. As you see nations literally invading other nations and bombing their people to pieces. What do you think the condition of humanity is? Do you think that we're healthy like our bodies, our minds, our emotions, our relationships, our ethics, you would say healthy, like doing well, on, on the right path, certainly. Or would you, like many people say, I think society, I think humankind is sick. Like something's clearly a little bit off. And those who settle in this camp of like there's a sickness generally think like with, with enough of the right resources. Maybe it's education. Maybe it's a different politic or a different politician. Maybe it's different laws. Maybe it's, maybe it's literally like locking up or at least silencing certain groups of people who have too much influence on society in a negative way. But if we, if we can get rid of them, 
we can get healthy again as a people, as a culture. And many people think that way. Or do you personally land in the camp of, I, I think we're dead? In the sense that something is fundamentally broken that we can't fix ourselves. We can't overcome with simply more education, more money, different politics, and that sort of thing. And I asked this kind of like high-level philosophical question to, to lead us off because this text talks about this. Um, but I also want to say why I think this matters. It matters because much like a medical situation or a counseling situation, if you have the wrong diagnosis, you're going to have the wrong potential cure. If, if you think that we're simply one thing or another, one condition or another, and you start throwing solutions at it that are really for a different problem, it's kind of like this. If you're healthy, you don't need kidney dialysis. In fact, I would suggest to you it would be incredibly harmful if you underwent dialysis as a healthy person. If you're dead, you also don't need kidney dialysis because it would be useless. Okay? The person that needs dialysis is the person who's sick with a particular kind of sickness, and so we treat it with a certain kind of solution. So as we come to our text this morning, you see that the Bible has a pretty unequivocal answer to this question. Is society, is humankind healthy? Is it sick or is it dead? And of course, I, I agree with what the Bible says, and you would expect me to as a Christian pastor, but I also believe what the Bible says because just stepping back and, again, looking at the news cycle and interacting with people, both as individuals and as groups of people, as tribes of people who are kind of jockeying for position and power one against another, I believe the Bible's assessment of what's going on in human nature corresponds to reality. I think a lot of non-Christians can look at the condition of people's lives around them and even look at some things going on in their own life and say, you know, if I'm honest, it's, it's worse than I would hope. So we're going to go chronologically through this passage. We're also going to go theologically through this passage. And it starts off bad. Can I hear your three points? There's a dire situation apart from Christ there is a decisive turning point in Christ, and there's a new direction because of Christ. So we start with the bad news, our dire situation apart from Christ. And Paul's going to say basically three things about the human condition here in the first couple of verses of writing this letter to this church in Ephesus. He's going to say, apart from Jesus, we are spiritually dead, we are slaves to sin, and we are sentenced to some kind of judgment, okay? And let's look at each of those. We are spiritually dead, he says, verse one. And what he means is just like a person who is physically dead is lifeless, is unresponsive, is incapable of either good or bad, that's what he's saying about our spiritual condition. And notice he's talking about our spiritual condition. You know, we can, we can feel very much alive and be like, what do you mean I'm, I'm dead apart from Jesus? Like, I'm, I'm alive. I'm very much alive. I'm doing fine. And this is probably what Adam and Eve thought way back in the Garden of Eden. Remember when God tells them, like, you can basically do whatever you want. You got free run of the place. Just don't eat the fruit of that one tree. And if you do disobey... In the day that you disobey, you will surely die. And they may even like eat that fruit at first Eve. Then she gives it to Adam and he eats. And they're looking at each other like, well, 
I guess God's a liar because, you know, here we are. We're both alive. We're talking to each other. We have a life ahead of us to live. And so we need to understand the point is not you sin and just instantly drop dead. Because if we did, we would all die very young. And in fact, we wouldn't die at all because we would never live because our parents would have done that before us and their parents would have done it before them and their parents and so on. So like if we just instantly died because we sinned, like we wouldn't have a society to begin with. So the point is not that we just drop dead. And the point is also not that apart from Christ, we are capable of many good and caring, loving things. Because the Bible asserts that every single human being is fashioned in the image of God. Humans are unique out of all creation because, in a sense, we look like God. We reflect something of God's nature. And so even in people who are not Christian yet, they can love one another. They can sacrifice for other people. They can seek justice and mercy on behalf of the margin. They can do many good things. The point is simply that apart from Christ, we have this spiritual death, which is a separation from God. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden. It's not that they physically dropped dead. It's that in the moment they chose sin, there was a tear in the relationship with God. They were separated from God, and on their own, they were incapable of getting back into God's good graces and saving themselves, okay? And let me just be clear. If we are spiritually dead, as Paul begins this text by saying, if we are spiritually lifeless and unresponsive, it's why we can't be saved. We can't inherit eternal life simply by being good people because dead people don't make amends for themselves. You know, very often, as you see someone who has kind of a, a prolonged and um, like fairly obvious like sickness or they're just getting older and older. You know, I've talked with a number of people and one even recently who was kind of thinking through his life of like, who do I need to go back to and, you know, ask forgiveness for certain things that I've never gone back and humbled myself and asked forgiveness for. And I, I want to make amends and I want to settle some things with some people because there's a realization, like, once you're, once you're dead, you, you can't go back and do that. You can't go back and make things right. That's this idea of a spiritual deadness. Uh, but keep going in verses 2 and 3, because along with that spiritual deadness, Paul also indicates we were carried along apart from Christ by three powerful forces. He says, we were following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. So as I introduced, in a word, Paul's saying, apart from Christ, we were slaves. We were slaves to sin. And he shows three different kind of categories that are all throughout the Bible of we were enslaved to certain things. Number one, we were enslaved to the thinking and the patterns of this world, or you may say like this, this present age, or just the way culture is. And most of you probably observe that there is a spirit to our age. You know, as you interact with social media, as you interact with uh, friendships, as you interact in your vocation, in your workplace, as you turn on the news or skim through the news on a device, you see there is a spirit to our age that is honestly not healthy. 
You know, we want autonomy. We want the authority to run our own lives. We don't want people telling us what to do or even who we are. We want the liberty to choose that for ourselves. We want to forge our own identities. And very often those identities are ruled by nothing more than subjective feelings. Like, I, I feel this way, so therefore I am this way. Our world is proud rather than humble. Our world is greedy rather than generous. Our world is selfish rather than selfless. Our world is critical rather than caring. Our world honestly is dehumanizing. You, th- you think about, you know, maybe not you, but what other people are doing to one another is incredibly dehumanizing. It's not looking at other people and saying, you know, in spite of your flaws and your brokenness, I see a person who's made in the image of God. We're just like, you're worthless to me. Your whole category of people is worthless to me. So that's the idea of going along with thinkings and patterns of this world. He also says we're going along with and we're enslaved to the adversary that opposes God. And Paul calls this devil figure the prince of the power of the air. Because back then they were thinking of like, you know, humankind kind of rules the earth and God rules the heavens. But there's this in-between space with these supernatural powers that some of them are good and some of them are evil. And they're kind of doing battle with each other. And Paul just says there, there is one figure that's a prince over this realm And apart from Christ, we're enslaved to this figure. And it would be very easy to get defensive at this point and be like, wow, like I didn't come to church to be told like I was demon possessed or something. And understand that's not what he's saying. He's not saying you were possessed by Satan. He's also not saying you're as evil as you could possibly be. Again, as I mentioned, because we're made in the image of God, there is much goodness, much kindness, much love, much desire for justice, even in the lives of non-Christians. Okay? The idea is there's a certain spirit that is present in our culture because of the influence of this adversary of God. Just like that spirit first introduced itself into the Garden of Eden when the serpent comes and tempts Eve and says certain things that God is telling you are actually not true and what I'm telling you are true. And you see from the outset, you know, first and foremost, one of the, one of the spirits of this adversary is simply the spirit of autonomy. Like Satan literally got kicked out of heaven because he's like, I don't want to honor God as God. I want to be like God. I want to be lifted up. I'm, I'm as good as he is. And so he gets cast down because of this pride, this arrogance, this autonomy, this desire, not only to live independently from God, but to elevate himself over God. And so where we see that independent, idolatrous, like I want to run my own life, that's not just this cosmic thing that's going on. That's a reflection of the spirit of this adversary. You know, scripture goes on to describe this Satan character as someone who is deceptive. He's a liar. As someone who loves to sow chaos and confusion. Um, he loves to accuse. He takes people's sin and he throws it in their face or he even falsely accuses. He loves to twist and distort, not even for personal gain, but simply to hurt other people or simply to hurt people. He's the mastermind of things like death and decay. And so when we see a culture that embraces death, that embraces deceitfulness to like, I I want what I want. And so if, if other people get hurt in the process of my path to do what I want, too bad. 
the idea of what Paul is saying here is we're actually enslaved not only to the world, but also to things that are characteristic of God's foremost adversary. But then we're enslaved to one more thing, and that is our own fleshly desires. So Paul, Paul refers to them here as the passions of our flesh and the desires of the body. And this is, he uses a word here that's not just like, I desire something, I want something, but I can take it or leave it. The word here is like an over-desire or a controlling desire. And I think all of you have experienced that somewhere, somehow. That, that maybe in your own thinking, you're like, this thing is not healthy for me, but I can't help but keep choosing it. I keep going back to something. And th- these feel like controlling forces in my life. And, uh, you know, us, us counselors or some of you who are just a friend or a spouse or a parent, you see this in others that it's like you wish you could be free of the grip of something. But it has, even though it's like powerless in a sense, it's nothing in a sense, it has this incredible power in your life. Something as simple as materialism, just seeing everyone in culture go after just the accumulation of stuff. And it's always like up and to the right. And, and we're never satisfied to kind of like drop down and be healthier. It's always, it's got to be up. It's got to be more. It's got to be better. And we're all always trying to go this direction. And some of us may be controlled by that. And you're like, I wish I could be more generous, but I want more and I want more stuff and I can't break that. For some, it's just an addiction really to like sex or other pleasures where you're like, some of these pleasures aren't even bad in and of themselves, but I'm controlled by them. Like I have to have certain things that I feel like I run in my life in order to feel like I'm in control. Um, Speaking of being in control, I mean, how many are just like, that is a controlling addiction of my flesh. Like I have to be in control of situations. And one of my worst fears and one of my worst experiences is simply not feeling like I'm in control or knowing I'm not in control of a situation because we crave control. We crave, I mean, there are physical addictions to things like alcohol or drugs that, you know, talk to many, many people who wish they could break free of that addiction. But it literally physically controls their flesh and they keep going back for more. Um, there are fleshly desires that are, that are just lived out in attitudes where you may say, you know, I've got this very critical complaining spirit or like I'm sarcastic all the time or I'm like more mean-spirited than I wish I were or I'm using other people. I'm kind of a manipulative personality. And you may look at some of these different attitudes that are coming from your heart and you're like, I hate this in myself, but I can't break it. And that's what Paul is talking about here when he says, not only apart from Christ were we spiritually dead, but we are slaves, again, to the world, to the flesh, and to the devil, the adversary. And when we tell ourselves, like, I could stop anytime if I want, many of you know I actually can't, not on my own. And that's what he's saying here. Thirdly, and the last thing apart from Christ is, he says, verse 3, we were sentenced to judgment. Okay, he says, verse 3, we were by nature children of wrath. Okay, and 
And I realize you, you came to church this morning, maybe a friend brought you and you're like, oh, I hate that word. Because we, we think of wrath as this sudden explosion of kind of uncontrolled anger. It's like somebody flies off the handle. They overreact to something and we're like, that is wrath. Well, that is never how the Bible uses this word wrath to describe God. Like, believe it or not, God's wrath is, is deeply connected to both his holiness and his love. His love. See, because it's connected to his holiness because just by his eternal, uncreated nature, God is holy. He is perfect. He is set apart from sin. And so when sin comes in and it's this darkness and it's this disease and it's this death, God's nature is opposed to that stuff. But it's not a flying off a handle opposition. It is like it's a settled, judicial wise hatred of nasty stuff. But I said it's connected to his love because when God looks at the brokenness of our world, he sees it, it's not an abstraction. He sees it hurting people. He sees us hurting each other. And because he loves us, you know, how do you feel as a parent when you love your children, you would do anything for your children, and you see either they're doing something harmful to themselves or someone else is coming in and doing something harmful to them. Like, you may not fly off the handle in rage and just, like, beat some other little kid up, but you feel this anger of, like, you are attacking something very precious to me, and because I love this person or these people, I will protect Okay, and that's the idea of this wrath being connected to his love. But what it's saying is, unfortunately, by virtue of the fact that we are sinners hurting ourselves, hurting others, that's why he says, by nature, we are children of wrath. Like we're born into this and right out of the gate, we go astray. And he uses this word trespass here, which is like, you know what trespassing is. It's like, there's that sign that says, you can't go here. And you're like, but I think I'm going to go there, you know, because I want to see where that trail goes in the mountains or I want to fish on that private property because it's got the best and the biggest fish, okay? Whatever your reason for trespassing, we know it's a false step. It's an overstep into something that's forbidden. And this word sin is the idea of just simply like missing the mark. Like God has a target for our lives and some of you may miss by a lot further than others, but the reality is we're all missing the mark. And this is the bad news, okay? And I realize this is bad news because chronologically and theologically, our stories start in a not good place. And again, the Bible's assertion is we're not just sick in need of more education or in need of medicine or in need of money being thrown at something. He says we are slaves separated from God, living under a sentence of death and incapable of rescuing ourselves. But that brings us to our decisive turning point in Christ. And look at the first two words of verse 4. Paul's saying, all of this is true. You're more helpless. <laughs> You're worse off than you realize. That's the bad news. But God. And I think it's no exaggeration to say those are two of the most important words in the Bible. And two of the most important words for everything we believe as Christians these are two of the most important words in human history. It is like, yes, we were dead, not merely sick. 
Yes, we were enslaved. Yes, we had a sentence on our lives, but God. And go on, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And in these verses, Paul is showing us, again, this decisive turning point in human history and in your personal lives. And he shows us what God did, why God did it, and how. So what God did, notice these three phrases, verses 5 and 6. He says, God made us alive together with Christ. Okay, see, we're spiritually dead. We're not capable of responding or doing anything good to save ourselves. But he says, You were made alive together with Christ. You were raised up with Christ. You were seated in the heavenly places in Christ. And if you remember back from a couple weeks ago, those of you who are here, or if you weren't, you can just kind of run your eyes across the page because this sounds a lot like chapter 1, verse 20. So if you remember from the last couple weeks, the Bible says here, Jesus died to forgive us, to pardon our sins, to set us free. There's the word ransom of like, he paid this price to say, no more bondage in your life. And then after he's laid down his life, he shed his blood, his body's broken on the cross, he's put in a borrowed tomb. Last week we were looking at this, that that God, the power of God, reaches down into death and brings Jesus back. This is Easter, right? And made him alive and raised him up and seated him at the right hand of the Father. And now, just a few verses later, Paul's saying this thing that happened to Jesus, like it actually happened to his body, to his life. He's expanding it and saying, now it happened to you. And so I I kind of see this like this. It's like in the middle of human history, there's this thunderclap of God's power to break sin, to break guilt, to break death, to bring Jesus back to life and say, I accept his sacrifice on your behalf. And now he's seated at my right hand. And because that's true, all those who are coming with him, they get credited with his resurrection and his ascension and his enthronement at the Father's right hand. So everything that Jesus did gets credited to you by the sheer grace of God. Okay, so we've, we've turned the corner from really, really bad news about who we are apart from God to say, but if you're in God, if you're in Christ by faith, you get all of these benefits. Um, I was watching one of the Avs games this past week, went up to Madison Square Garden. They did, not me. Um, they were playing the, playing the Rangers and it goes to overtime. And the way this works, if, if you you know, no hockey is like this short overtime period. If it's still tied, it goes to shootouts and each team gets three shooters, uh, you know, one-on-one with the goalie and whoever's leading after three shots wins the game. And if no one's leading, you go to a fourth shooter. And if it's still tied, you go to a fifth shooter and so on until there's a tie break. So in this game, it goes to a shootout and every time we missed, they missed. And then uh, yeah, I think Rantanen finally scores, and then they score. So it's 3-3, and it's going to the fourth shooter. And Rodriguez scores, and the Rangers miss, and so the avalanche win. Okay? And notice what I just said. The avalanche win. So only one guy scores the goal, 
And this is the way shootouts work. And I actually, I don't love it, but it's like this one guy now, like all this weight is on him of like, you represent the entire team. If you score, we win. If you miss, we lose or keep going. That's, that's kind of the picture of what's going on here when I say what God did. He says, because Jesus is your representative, what he does is not just for him, but it's for you. So when he dies, like this is what we believe as Christians, is like you, you, that old person died with him. Like you don't have to keep going on sinning and, and, and being tempted and being run over by your patterns of temptation. He's like that, that old man, that old woman, that old child that died with Jesus, you were buried with him. Now, this is what we're picturing in, in baptism. is like you were buried with him. Now you're raised with him to walk in the newness of life. And your, your inheritance and, in fact, your citizenship, it's not just it's a future heavenly thing. He says you are seated in heavenly places with Christ now. You have this credited to you now. So that's what God did. Why did he do it? And I want you to notice that, that Paul is very, very clear. He says... Even when you and I were dead in our trespasses and sins, God did this for us in Jesus. So I want you to notice we had not turned the corner. We had not turned over a new leaf. God, God didn't respond to us because we had started to show some interest in him or had kind of righted the ship. We'd gotten our act together. And, and this is the view of a lot of religion is basically, you know, you have this scale and it's like, yeah, you're doing some bad things and having some bad thoughts and some bad emotions and some bad reactions, but you're also doing some good. And at the end of time, like surely, you know, it all kind of balances out. And if you've done more good than bad, which most people probably have, I just have this vague notion that we just all get saved. And the Bible's like, no, you, you, you don't get like positive credit for doing good things that are filtered through mixed motives when the bad stuff over here is just weighing you down and killing you spiritually. So notice why God did what he did. It says right here in the text, God did what he did when we were dead because he's merciful, because he's loving, and because he's kind. And that's it. God doesn't look at us and think like, oh, you deserve my salvation because you're a pretty good person doing pretty good things. You over here, you do not deserve it. No shot for you. That's not the picture. That's, that's religion. That is not the gospel. The gospel is that God is, God is to put it another way, he's, he's not motivated by something he sees in us. He's motivated by something he sees in himself. Like he is holy. He is righteous. He is good. He is kind. He is merciful. These are his kids. And yes, they've gone really, really far from him in their sin, and they can't fix their own situation but he's pursuing and he's drawing and he's winning us back by his love, by his grace. So I want you to see that because whatever you think of verses one through three and it's dark and it's heavy and we don't like to hear stuff like that, you may even be ticked. Like, I don't, I don't think I'm dead. I, I think I'm sick or I, I think I'm fine. But the Bible asserts you're not fine, but God did this for you because he is merciful, loving, kind. That's good news. Now, how did God do it? How did God not, not only die for our sins, but 
make us alive together with Jesus, raise us up with Jesus, and exalt us with Jesus. Well, there's a negative and there's a positive. In other words, he tells us he didn't do it like this. He did do it like this. And the negative is what? The negative is it's not by your works. In other words, you are not earning your salvation. You are not even contributing to your salvation. Positively, it is by his grace. Okay? And that, that makes sense. If we accept the metaphor that we are like spiritually dead apart from Jesus, we're not thinking, but as a dead person, I can do a lot of good things to start piling up the account. And then God sees me and is like, well, you're benevolent. And you're a basically decent person doing a lot of good things. So I'll save you. Now, the scripture's answer to our problem of sin and guilt and shame from the very first pages is just the free grace of God plus nothing. It is unmerited, undeserved favor that we can't repay. And in fact, we're not asked to repay it. God doesn't put a price on his salvation and say, if you are to repay this, it's going to look like this. Let's set up a payment plan. Let's get going. He's just like, it's, it's just free and extraordinary. Okay? So how do we get it? Not by what we did, but by what God did by his free grace. So you're like, so what is my role in being saved? Verse 8, you simply believe that this is true. Like when someone brings good news to you, you know, you, you think of like the, the horrific concentration camps of World War II, Dachau and Auschwitz and Sobibor, and, and you're thinking of like other people are fighting a battle to the death. They're risking their lives or they're literally sacrificing your, their lives to come to these places and liberate captives. And if someone comes and says, hey, we have defeated this army. We have defeated this Third Reich. You are free to go and have your lives back. It's like, what, what, what do you have to do to get that though? You, it's, it's free. It's, it's bought by the blood of others. You accept that it's true and you walk out. And by God's grace, you start rebuilding this life that has been restored to you. That's the picture here. So we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, finally, so we started with this dire condition apart from Christ, this decisive turning point, but God rich in mercy because he loves you. Now, our new direction because of Christ, verse 10. And the picture here, that this is what Paul wants the church to know. He's like, you're Jew and Gentile. You're male and female. You're rich and you're poor. You're wise, educated, and you're foolish. You're, you're all these conditions. But anyone who's saved and becoming part of this one family is saved by the free grace of God. And he's like, now here's what I want you to know. Because if God has done this for you, you can't just go back to living the way that everyone else is living. You can't just go back to the same old patterns of sin and temptation and failure. And you're carrying around this backpack of guilt and shame and just being like, well, at least I get to go to heaven when I die. And you do if you're in Christ. But salvation is so much more now, today, than simply knowing I get to go to heaven when I die. And here it is, verse 10. He says, for we are his, that is God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And this verse shows us a new center, a new identity, and a new purpose. He's saying the new center is, your center is in Christ now. You were centered in the world before. 
You were just like, what was present in your life at all times was just the world. And he says, you were walking in the way of the world. You were walking according to like just the cultural notions of your day and this giant group think. And you all know that's a serious issue still today of just like, well, I just accept all these things to be true because more people than not believe them. But if you were to travel halfway around the world to a different kind of culture, you would realize those people don't believe the things that progressive Americans believe. They believe very different things. Well, we're progressive Americans, so we win. You know, we're, we're obviously right. And we have that cultural and chronological snobbery that C.S. Lewis warned us about. Well, we have a new center besides just being immersed in culture and just thinking like everyone else. Because Jesus is saying, look, if, if I did this for you by free grace, then life is not about you. Life is about him. Okay, how did we get this freedom? How did we get this kindness? How did we get this recreation, this regeneration, this new life? Over and over again here, you can skim your, your eyes through it. Verse 7, we got it in Christ Jesus. Verse 10, we got it in Christ Jesus. And do you know Paul is so ecstatic in telling us what Jesus has done for us that we could never do ourselves? He actually makes up three words in verses 5 and 6. Like these, these were, and Paul's famous for this, but like these words never existed before Paul. And he's like, I, I got to explain to you, like, this, this is what Jesus did for you that is so incredible. So he takes this prefix soon in the Greek, which means with. And look at this. He says, he, he slaps it onto existing words for make alive, raise up, and seated. And he's like, you've been made alive with. It's a soon made alive. S-U-N or not. Not S-U-N, you get it. It's Greek letters, but... You've been made alive with Christ. You've been raised with Christ. You've been seated with Christ. Like he's so overflowing to tell us the joy and the miracle of what God has done. He's literally just making up words, but every Greek person would look at that and be like, oh, yeah, alive with, raised with, seated with this other person who as a representative did all this stuff for me, okay? And the call here is, is Christ the center of your life? Is he the center of your focus? Like, part of what he says here is the reason why, well, there are at least two, two reasons why God saved you by sheer grace is one, because you would never have been saved any other way, okay? We're just not that good, and our sin is really that bad that it separates us from God. So we wouldn't have gotten saved apart from grace, but he also says, I didn't want anyone to boast in themselves, I didn't want the philosophical, educated person to be like, well, I wrestled with these texts of scripture and I understood it, so look at me. Or I, I was wealthy and I had material resources where I didn't have to work in the fields all day, so I had more time to sit down and study it out, so look at me. Or I was raised in a good home and I did pretty much good things, so look at me. He's like, I want to wipe all of that personal boasting out. It's not about you. This means God could save literally anyone. So think of like the worst of the worst of the worst. And God's probably pursuing that kind of person today, not just the people who look like they're this close to getting saved at all times because they're so awesome. So he's saying, center your life on the one who did all of this for you. 
and put your focus and your energy into, Lord, I want to be present with you. As I go throughout my day, I, wanna, I don't want to focus on all of these other things and be so distracted and so all over the place in my heart, in my affections, in my thoughts, in my fears, in my responses and reactions to things. I want to center on you. That's the first thing he's saying. Then he shows you, you got a new identity. So you're not this dead, broken, enslaved person. He says, you're God's workmanship. There's an interesting Greek word here, poema, and we get our English word poem from this word, okay? But I wouldn't overlimit. He's not saying you are God's poem. Um, what he's saying is uh, a poema was any like super creative artistic work, basically, a handiwork, an original. And it's like you're God's original creative handiwork, I don't know if you've ever done this. Like, I enjoy art shows. I used to go to them in college and grad school all the time. And you, like, walk through and see interesting art. And it's one thing to be able to go through and kind of read the little blurb underneath it or next to it about a little bit about the author or whatever. Have you ever been to an art show where the author is actually there? And you can pull that person over and you'll be like, all right, what am I looking at here? You know, like, what's going on here? Like, because I can read into this if it's abstract or something. But... You ever have the opportunity to say, what, what were you thinking when you painted this or sculpted this or like 3D layered this thing together? Because it's really cool, but, um, and then they get to explain, well, this, this is what I was representing and this is what this means to me and the materials were chosen for these reasons. And you're like, wow, like I, that's really cool. When Paul says here, followers of Jesus, you are God's creative, artistic work. And what, is, what does Paul say God wants to display in and through our lives in this text? It's basically like this. Jesus is like, I'm, I'm the master artist and I'm taking your life from the ash heap and I'm working in you and I'm working through you because I want your lives to display the unfathomable riches of grace. I want your lives to be a, a testimony to the power of God and the love of God and the kindness of God to radically transform so that when others see a believer and then see the church gathered together and, and the way you're loving one another as Christ first loved you, it just blows their minds. How does God have this much power? How is he this kind? Like we have all hurt God so deeply that he's just like, through the sacrifice of my son, his blood, his body, I forgive you. And that's not the kind of forgiveness of like, but I still hold it over you, so I hope you don't mess up again. Because we will mess up again. It's like, I forgive you. And there's this magnanimous thing going on with our lives where God is like testament to grace. And I want my life to look like that, where it's just like, yeah, there's, there's bad stuff going on. There's good stuff going on. The good stuff certainly is about, isn't about me. Look at what God is doing in my life. Look at what God wants to do through my life to introduce other people to this kind of grace. And I love how we're going to get into later chapters here where Paul's literally like the, the angels of heaven that have been around like longer than us. 
it's like they're watching this narrative of human history unfold. And it's like they're on the edges of their seats. Like, what is, what is he going to do? What is he going to do? Because they, they see, like, there's all this sin. There's all this death. There's all this hatred and contention and pride and lust. And it's gross. And, like, what, what's he going to do? Like, gee, God made this world and all these people. And it's just so messed up. And then they're like, whoa. Wait, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, took on human flesh and lived perfectly, flawlessly, and died and was raised up and said, now I'm calling you. Just, just come with me and let me give you everything that I earned. And he's saying that's our new identity. Out of all the identities and the layers of identity that you can wrestle with in your life, like this is by far at the top. I am God's workmanship. I'm his creative artistry. And my life is now intended to display his mercy, his justice, his grace, his love, his power. If I can be about one thing, that's what I want to be about. And then finally, a new purpose which is just simply doing good works, created for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And the contrast here is we were walking in sin in verse one, and it was the kind of sin that we couldn't break free of. It controlled us. We were straying off course. We were following the spirit of the age, but God charted a new course for our lives. And he's like, instead of walking in the ways of the world, I want you to walk in the ways of Jesus. And there's an incredible balance here that Paul says, we are not saved by our good works, but we are saved for good works. In other words, our good works don't contribute something meritorious, but now that we've been saved by the free grace of God, and we love this one who saved us, and we respect this one who saved us, and we know this one who saved us, and he's like, now walk in a way that's healthy and that promotes human flourishing. We're like, yeah, I get it. And out of, out of humility now, not pride, out of gratitude now, not earning. Out of love instead of some mercenary thing, we get to walk in good works. And he's put his spirit's power in us to actually enable us to do that. And as I was wrapping this up this week, I was, I was kind of impressed how this verse 10 kind of follows, um, like some of you are aware of this, like practicing the way, John Mark Comer, of like, what does it actually look like to follow Jesus? Um, because if you're new to Christian faith or you're not, not a believer, um, it's easy to look at Christians and be like, I think what they believe is that they do better stuff than other people, that they are better people than other people. They go to church, they read their Bibles, they're hypocrites, they, you know, I, I don't know what it means to be a Christian. Well, some Christians I know are just like, my faith hasn't really transformed my everyday life, certainly hasn't transformed my vocation. I'm living for the same things as everybody else. But I get to go to heaven when I die. And neither of those is the picture of verse 10. The picture of verse 10 is kind of what Comer says in practicing the way of Jesus, following an apprenticeship to Jesus. It's like this. It's be with him, become like him, do what he did. That's why I use these words like center and focus, identity and purpose. It's the same, it's another way of saying, be with God, be present with Jesus. As you go throughout your day, followers of Jesus, and you find my mind, my heart, my affections are far from Jesus, like just take a moment to kind of recenter. 
and say, Lord, forgive me, I'm, I'm drifting, but you're, you're there, you're faithful, I want to center on you. And my identity is this workmanship to display, display your grace, so I'm becoming like Jesus in my character. Because what did Jesus live for? To display the power and the love and the grace of the eternal God. I want to be like him, and then I want to do the things that he did. Like, I want to practice obedience from my heart, and I want to be generous, and I want to be selfless, and I want to be humble, and I want to be kind to other people. I want to be a truth teller. I want to, like, settle conflicts with others as much as I possibly can and be a reconciler of people instead of following the spirit of the age of being so contentious and divisive and critical all the time. So I hope what you're hearing in all of this is that even though our story, and I mean every single one of us, started so poorly, destitute, dead, but God, and God saves you to be masterpieces of his grace. So may we live this week just saying, Lord, this is my purpose. I want to put your grace on display so that other people experience the kindness and the hope of Jesus through my life this week. Let's pray.